0: I would like to speak to you today about transparency. To do so, I would like to focus on a verse from one of the Psalms attributed to David, in which it says, God desires truth in the inward parts." One of the oft repeated aphorisms of my childhood was, speak the truth and speak it ever, cost it what it will he who hides the wrong he did does the wrong thing still. The relationship between speaking the truth and transparency is when we think about truth as a big empty room in which there is nothing to hide and nowhere to hide. My choice of the words of Psalm 51 God desires truth in the inward part is because of the fact that Psalm 51 is an individual lament, which over time came to be used by the compiler as a national lament. In the Psalm, the Psalmist says that God desires truth in the inward parts and goes on to say, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He also goes on to speak about a broken and a contrite spirit that God will not despise. The background to this psalm is that the psalm is usually interpreted as a confession by King David, who had had acted in the most devious, treacherous, and cruel manner in taking away the wife of Uriah, the foreigner, and in engineering the taking of the life of Uriah on the battlefield. The king was confronted with his wrongdoing by the prophet Nathan, and quite apart from the consequences to his family and his kingdom, it meant a challenge to the insincerity and hypocrisy and downright fraud that David had become. The words, you desire truth in the inward part, is David facing up and owning up to his scheming, treachery and deviousness. It is the king acknowledging that what was wrong with what he did was that it failed God and betrayed the trust that the people had in him as their leader. By so acting, he had made himself into a fake and a fraud, a gamesman. All the psalm He had written, and the examples he had set in waiting his time rather than touching the Lord's anointed was for naught. He had let the side down badly. Psalm 51 has 19 verses, and the first 17 verses focus on the individual pleadings. Verse 18 18 and 19, however, widens the focus of the psalm from personal lament to a national lament. He prays for the walls of Jerusalem to be built up and for the sacrificial system ostensibly within the Jewish temple to be restored. There was no Jewish temple built in David's time as king. The first Jewish temple was built during the reign of his son Solomon. The Psalmist has had some time to see how the intransparency of David's life played out on the public square. So when he speaks about God's desire for truth in the inward part, he's speaking to us as individuals in our personal lives and the choices we make, the things we hide, and the places we seek hiding in. But he also has a broader consideration about how all of this plays out in the public square. The personal and the public are wedded together. The private and the political. The matters of public policy are of a piece. It is not one standard for the private domain and another for the public square. It is woven together. It is a seamless garment. Here, then, are some lessons about transparency from this verse god desires truth in the inward parts the first thing to be said is that in order to speak the truth you have yourself to be true the truth makes a demand on us personally in another place the bible says out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. Mm. this is what we have always known that there is a relationship between the message and the messenger. This deed that the king did, which occasioned such damage in his family and in his kingdom, was not something he did while on official duty. One might say that it was something he did on his downtime in his private space. Who you are is who you are when no one is looking when you think you can get away with it whatever it is that is when you know yourself the dialogue is to set standards for ourselves that we must want to be true true to our nobler and better selves true to our highest ideals true to our values true to our commitment to the greater good We must not allow ourselves time off from this commitment to this and this pursuit. Never let our standards down. Never let our guards down. In other words, let us put our hearts in it. It is not good enough to burnish our image and to exploit people's sensibilities, even their gullibility. By the picture of ourselves we paint, passing ourselves on to the public as if we are what we are not. There must be truth in the inward parts. It is not good enough that the truth is a tactic that from time to time we employ or a clever manoeuvre we make. Truth must come from who we are and what we are and what we believe. This is one of the things that is so hard Mm -hmm. to find these days. People whose hearts are in it. Jamaican people have it to say that you don't know what their ant's belly until you mash ants. The COVID pandemic has been mashing many ants. It has exposed the interior of many of us and it has revealed that there is not much there. There are too many people like Bamboo. They have no middle, no inner core. Like Bujubantan once said, you must, your inside must say, uh, hello. If there is going to be transparency, we must be true, genuine. In a word, there must be sincerity. We have to have truth in the inward parts. The second thing is that transparency requires us to believe that the truth matters. This commitment to transparency, open communication, full disclosure, giving the truth and coming clean is not an optional extra. It is an essential and indispensable demand. This is as as good a time as any to be reminded that the truth matters, that fact matters that reality matters we have not always been so convinced that fact that the truth that reality matter Mm -hmm. in recent times some people do not allow the truth or reality or the fact to interfere with their positions they follow their gut they play to the gallery they say whatever they can get away with They have approached things as if if you say nice things about reality or make up the truth, it will at least buy you friends if it does not also buy you time. This global pandemic has been soul-searching. It has left Mm. very little space for spin. All the happy talk has been silenced. We have 2 million people infected with the virus, and more than 50,000 people dead in America alone. All of our pump and boast, our wealth and technology, have dissipated. We are standing on feet of clay, frail children of dust, and feeble as frail though there are some people protesting and demanding their right to get the virus we are as vulnerable as we have ever been and no bleach can save us Mm. it is time to start over without the hype without the spin and without the baseless optimism the world needs a remake we need to remake we better start with an honest accounting of what we face and what we are. Let us be honest. We have built entire industry based on making up stuff. We have been willing to be duped and to be fooled so that we can tickle our fancy and live in a bubble in the moment. Most of us are getting cabin fever now. Some miss dressing up and others miss getting out. But what we now know is that much of what we were killing up ourselves over, we can do very well do without. We need a life that is true, that is based on truth, that is preoccupied with knowing and living the truth. Let us face it, a few weeks ago, all the pundits were telling us how well the world economy was doing. Some were saying stronger than ever, And yet, in a few short weeks, that same world economy is in ICU, now on life support. It did everything right, yet there was no system of support for the poor and the at-risk population, no health insurance for many. In a few weeks, if we don't do some things differently, we are going to be faced with food riots. One thing we now know is that, that that is not how to build an economy. When we build an economy the next time, we should put away something for the rainy day. When this is all over, maybe we should demand from our leaders to tell us the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And let us commit ourselves to honesty as the best policy. We must tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. The third thing about transparency transparency is that it must make the truth a public good. The Psalm, which begins with have mercy on me, O God, wash away all my iniquity, ends with words, build the walls of Jerusalem, then bulls will be offered on your altar, is making a connection that we ignore to our peril. It is saying that truth is a public good, just like roads, and hospitals and schools, truth is a sacred trust to be guarded. This means that the nation and the community are built on the truth. The truth is what makes its systems run. It is what makes its leaders Mm. to be trusted. It is what makes the people cooperate to build their country. What happened to David? was this his afternoon philandering with Mrs Uriah and the resultant treachery, deception and cruelty by which he sought to cover it up undermined his moral authority. He betrayed the trust the people placed in him. The intrigue he created followed him into his home. One of his own sons killed another one and yet another of his sons pulled off a coup d'etat against his father King David. So much so that David had to flee barefooted and in disgrace. This psalm, you desire truth in the inwards part, is from a chastened man and it led to a chastened people believing that truth is not an optional extra but an essential element of governance for a people that wants a bright future. What does this mean? This means that leadership has no more critical tool than its commitment to the truth. Leading the people is not a public relations gambit of manipulation, of half-truth, with a culture of lies, of innuendos, of misinformation, of disinformation. As one of our artists has said, tell the children or put the people the truth. It is time to come clean with the people, put an end to the games and the political charade. Telling the truth is how to treat people with respect that befits the dignity of our people. There are too many charlatans around that are no friends of the truth. We need to give our people more of the truth. They ought to be taught to handle the truth. We must build up their consciousness so that they are not gullible and waiting for a bellyful. Tell them who they are. Tell them where they come from. Tell them about their heroes and heroines, both sung and unsung. We are to require truth in advertising from our merchants and truth in lending from our bankers. We have to help our people know their story and come to terms with their story until we make this a brand new story. We need a more educated and informed population. Some of the madness that we are experiencing in these parts, the slaughtering of our children and the disabled, is because of a lack of information and sheer ignorance that is ruling the roost. While we are at it, We have to help our people to grow up from conspiracy theories and idle gossips so that they may learn to test the spirits and not just repeat things without proving them for themselves. It was hoped that by the start of the 20th century, that because of education, there would be an end to war and disease. They have not ended. In Europe... A man named Joseph Goebbels perfected the theory of the big lie. It led to the slaughter of six million Jews and a war that cost 200 million lives. You would have thought that we have learned something from those experiences, but we are back to a world run on ignorance and hate. Today, after a nation came to near ruin, A man Mm. prayed and left his prayer for our example. He tells us God desires truth in the inward parts. Let us be true. Let us have sincerity. To thine own self be true. Let us make the truth matter. Let honesty be our best policy. And let us make truth a public good. Let us improve access to the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Let us build up a love for the truth among our people and let us build a nation based on truth. So help me God. Amen.
1: Darn good morning. Deeply resonant as always, the, cultural references, the biblical scholarship and erudition, the forthright speech, speaking of truth to power, prophetic, again a very inspiring piece that will leave us thinking and reflecting on self and society today and for quite a long time. I think there is some movie, a line from some movie where somebody says, truth, you cannot handle the truth. And that's one element of what your reflection has brought to my mind today, that there is an arrogance on the part of those of us who are in positions of power and leadership, where we have taken it upon ourselves to believe that we are the ones that have the power and the ability both to frame truth and reality. And therefore, others apart from ourselves, those that are on the margin, those that are more vulnerable, don't have the ability to understand to grasp, to deal with the truth. And so we have to provide them with the big lie to harken back to one of your references, and that we consider to be part of the good, the larger public good that we do for those that it is our duty, our obligation to protect. And in so doing, part of what we have perpetrated or continue to perpetuate in our individual spaces, both in the family, in the civil spaces in which we traverse, in the larger sort of ecclesial and public spaces is the portrayal and projection of a certain kind of fakery, fakeness, fake news, disinformation. Your reflection has emphasized how much there is hollowness and fakery and the lack of the really real Presented our reality, and how much we have hollowed out the meaning of what it is to be real, to be truthful, truth and reality, such as we're able to grasp it. And there is a recognition on my part around our human frailness and fallibility that uh, may not ever allow us to get to the depth of truth. And for us, truth reality has to do with the presence of something larger than ourselves to which we grasp after part of the largeness of that self is a recognition of the value of each human person the value of a frail person that is tempted towards fakery And so there's that individual piece that we're always going to be struggling with and then how that gets reflected on when we are in positions of power and then refracted back on the larger society which we craft and create. And so the challenge that you're presenting to us is to continually check ourselves, do that temperature check about what reality is so that we don't allow ourselves to be continually sucked into what has now become a national and an international pastime of circulating fake news creating fake news it um, resonates with me um, having been sent last night by one of my sisters this piece suggesting that the name of jamaica land of wood and water doesn't come from our taino ancestors but actually may well come from our akan um, ancestry and so on I never heard it before for myself, going into this whole process of trying to research it and recognizing that I couldn't find any sort of scholarly uh, backing for this um, assertion. There was the attempt to pin the assertion to a particular text given only by the name of the author and the year which sent me to another space of trying to discern and to find out who this could be which book is this referring to and so on and just a recognition of how we try to make truth real by attaching to it certain kinds of veneers of authority so the example that i'm giving you here somebody arbitrarily attached the, the, a reference to a book that could possibly have been behind it because it would have been a linguistic text doing an online search of that linguistic text surface none of that information and just therefore for me a reflection that part of why fakery works part of why disinformation works part of why we get sucked into this on reality is because it seems to have the validity that comes from a certain kind of authority. Certain people, certain organizations, certain institutions, yes, we have to name them. The church being one of them, or higher educational institutions, education generally, or political directorate and leadership, um, leadership in business and so on. We come with a certain level of authority. And when we therefore say that the world looks like this or our truth looks like this, people believe. We don't have to go into the whole thing about Clorox and disinfectant and the fallout of that and how many people went forward with that. It might boggle the minds of many of us who are supposedly educated and you ask, how could, why that doesn't make sense? But it does because you invest your faith in someone in authority who has the power to craft and to shape what reality is for you and therefore when they don't hold that power that they have with any kind of sacred trust where we have educational spaces starting at the most basic level not shaping our, our people in a way that helps to affirm them in the way that you have suggested, help them to understand the reality of where they, where we are coming from, and the heroes that have worked to help to bring us where we are, and the fact that we are dishonouring not only failing God and, and, and betraying trust, but we also feeling ourselves that we're, we're betraying the work that our ancestors have done to bring us to this space. I reflect too on, on again back on the fragility. So I'm I'm hearing fakeness, I'm hearing fragility. So all of that's wrapped up together in or the ease with which we fall into and are willing to hold on to and believe what is not true. A fundamental fakery, a fundamental lack of truth and honesty that we project and we we continue to paper over in some regard is the fact that we have created a society where there are such significant distinctions among ourselves that many have to be on the margins for the few at the top to maintain and to live the kind of life that we live And I think that's one of the truths that our pandemic is continuing to reveal to us. How many function as vulnerable people on the margins so that those of us in spaces of comfort can remain in those spaces. The events of the pandemic, the continuing unfolding of the pandemic is opening up to to us, to me, to you, to those of us that are willing to hear and to listen, the fact that our society cannot continue the way that it has been, or our local or family or ecclesial or global society cannot continue the way that it has been. And your hope that this is a moment for truth, a moment where we will get that wake-up call that can help us to come back to the point of being able to handle the truth is well taken and one that we each in our different ways should commit to I thank you
0: sorry about that I got interrupted I will have to do it again no I just I want to tell you just thank you for the thoughtfulness of your response I'm going to put it out on its own because it is a message in its own right right It's a message in its own right. And I wanted to kind of use the occasion to invite a conversation with you in something that I'm struggling with, you know, about the truth setting us free in this society at this time. And the thing I want to call your mind to is this 29-year-old young lady who lost her life having given birth um, two nights ago at the University Hospital I think you know the story. She is the HR manager for Pika. She was in the 38th week of her pregnancy. She started to have some shortness of breath. Breath. Her doctor, Dr. Lloyd Goldston, the OBGYN, um, decided that he had better go in early and I don't know whether a C section or induced, the preg- induced labor, um, checked her into Andrews. Now, they asked her while she was there if she has been coughing, and she said that she had. And they came to the determination that she's a suspected COVID case and told her that she could not remain at the hospital. Now, I think you know that you have to kind of plan your hospital when you're pregnant and book in. And she was fully paid up and booked in for Andrews. So having set up that derricks, they then know how to find a hospital to receive her. It, 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 one is not clear what it is that UWE says, because the higher-ups at UWE tell me that they are the hospital of last resort for any difficulty in pregnancy, and therefore she would, under all circumstances, have been admitted. But what seemed to have happened is a clerical decision that she wasn't booked to have her baby there, and therefore she couldn't get in. Jubilee was full. They took her to Spanish Town Hospital and she had her baby after one hour wait in the ambulance for the hospital to get ready. But then because of the respiratory difficulty, they had to ship her off to UAE where she was put in ICU and died at 10.30 the night before last night. Now, there are several lines of inquiry from a point of view of the truth as a public good that I want to think through. One is whether or not a hospital in this time of the global pandemic ought to be in a position to refuse persons access to medical care. I I just want to know whether there isn't a Disaster Act which would have allowed the government the option of commandeering all such facilities to be available for the treatment of the ill to do no harm. The other is, I wonder, Andrews is, of course, a Seventh-day Adventist. Property, the Prime Minister, is Seventh-day Adventist. Whether there is a protection on a latitude. I notice the unwillingness of the news media to identify the hospital. And I wanted to raise a question about that. But I want to raise a question beyond the, whether the family Susan, and whether we will ever know about how do we make being Jamaican mean something? There are people asking the question about the person from TCI that was admitted to the UAE, despite there being a lockdown of our borders. We are allowed to travel an air ambulance, get here, get treatment. But here is a woman, a Jamaican woman, who is denied. <laughs> we could go to the thing with the 42 or 43 or 41 people at sea still and talk about that. But what does it really mean to be Jamaican? How do we deploy the truth in the interest of forestalling what i think is a rumbling protest something is going to go viral and that something is going to create a serious set of unrest and i I wonder you know just think using this to think about how do we make the truth an instrument to set the society on its way to flourishing that is really what i'm concerned about and i think the cover-up the kind of anecdotes, the kind of playing on our sympathies now, denying us access then, never giving us a full account and full accountability, are all manipulating our sensibility a little bit. I'd be interested in your feedback.
1: Garnet, bear with me for a bit of stream of consciousness uh, reflection on the question that you just answered for me. there's a little bit of tearfulness that I have around the, the story and what I've learned of it. I have no idea who the young woman is, was, and you've mentioned that she, P- Pika HR manager. And several years ago, I was a board member of Pika, So it's coming close to home again. Um, she may well have been someone that I would have encountered or had interactions with at that time. I have to say that um, the story, when I heard it on the news a couple of nights ago, outraged me and I was so angry and I was seen to Patrick, she, I mean at that point she had not died. It was just a story about her moving around, being shuffled from hospital to hospital, and this unnamed private hospital into which she had booked, and so on. And it so outraged me, and I was so angry. And I was saying to Patrick, they need to sue, they ought to sue. And, you know, although I know that some of it's going to come out of my pocket as a taxpayer she ought to sue this kind of inhuman treatment of each other as Jamaicans has got to stop. Nobody had to tell me which private hospital it was. I knew the private hospital was Andrews because of how they had been posturing from early on concerning treating with persons that had some kind of respiratory um, illness. They and put themselves out there as not being able to care for people, so people are not to come. Can you imagine a hospital? I mean, that for me was so problematic. A hospital saying, people should not come, don't come. We can't treat you. Not that. We are going to put ourselves in a position whereby we do no harm, and we will do what we can to assist and to treat. They put a thing in the paper and said, don't come. That was in and of itself frightening. And then, you know, there were additional stories too of um, a, another doctor that had served in the space for a long time. I don't think it was Andrews, but some other private hospital um, being refused treatment there because of suspected, co- all of that kind of thing. And it oftentimes, the story comes down to, for example, what happened with her going to UWI and being initially sent away from UWI, a clerical error, that uh, um, someone lower down with the kind of power that comes with those kinds of initial contact spaces, being in a circumstance or a situation of fear for his or her life. Um, sad so I have to say more than like, it would have been a her. And we run around with this myth of a particular kind of and peculiar compassion that the feminine gender is supposed to have and oftentimes you recognize in spaces that we women can be as harsh and as cruel as it is put upon that men are and in caring circumstances like that it becomes even more painful so the an initial sort of reflection and an annoyance that I've had a lot of times, sort of watching the news at night, is where these ads come on and you have the minister who has been on, even before the COVID crisis, he was very much a public presence, coming out and saying, you know, don't discriminate, we have to treat each other well and so on, and then I'm listening to that, and I'm reading the stories and I'm hearing the stories of the discrimination and the stigma against people who are suspected, how people are so afraid that they can be stigmatized by being seen to be as a suspected case, or so on. That their houses could be burned down, their lives could be in danger, and the the, the extent to which they take that fear so much, so that um, false addresses are given, people abandon spaces and run after other spaces and potentially take their infection with them, and so on. And that, to me comes down to and brings me back to a reflection of how in a certain way our society has descended to a certain kind of rabidness, a certain kind of lack of feeling or connection with the other person a certain kind of um, us against them and all that happens um, is really me needing to protect myself and my family and make sure that my family is alright so the, the discourtesy, the, the the, the, the fundamental and basic kind of discourtesies that have become commonplace in our social space in Jamaica today. You know, I was at the supermarket yesterday. I lined up, I got there early, I knew the supermarket was opening at 8, I lined up early, There were 20, 30 people in front of me, social distancing was at play, they're letting us all in one by one, they're doing temperature checks, and then you have to move forward to um, get a cart that has been sanitized, and then a woman just comes up out of the blue, comes in front of every one of us that's waiting, and just grabs a cart and proceeds away. And then the gentleman in front of her um who i recognize to be a colleague of mine uh from the uwi and so on say something to her um but this is a line you know we've all been here waiting and we're patiently taking our time and she just kiss her teeth and fob him off do i do the classist uh racist sexist thing and say this is our get a woman because that could be my quick reading of her just in terms of posture body language and so on I don't know but what I can tell you is that um, the the antenna my judgment my you know that that says how I've been shaped as a Jamaican person says you know that her her posture her body her demeanor her belief that she should not uh, remain in line and wait her turn but that she has a right to take what she wants for her personal benefit to disregard of other people but it's it's, it's not like she may well have been but it's not a ghetto thing it's a jamaican thing where we believe that we are more valuable and more important than the other and so we can and we have that disregard and so imagine when you layer on top of that already inbuilt, deepened, because it's almost like it's been sort of rubbed into us now. This kind of callous disregard for the other. This kind of lack of connection to our identity as Jamaican people and how that ought to tie us together in a particular and peculiar way. That uh, You don't have to like me. You don't have to love me. The, the, The affective part needs not be there as far as I'm concerned. But what we do want to have is to give regard to the other by simply recognizing that he, she, human being, creation, created being, Jamaican, nobody else is closer to us by bonds of affinity and affiliation and all of that than your fellow Jamaican. Um, Perhaps steps closer in would be members of your family but we have somehow given away, severed, uh, those bonds only come up when we want to, Gather together in half, which we celebrate and jump around when we see you say, in one of our other athletes performing well on the world stage, or we uh, see one of our artists or so on doing marvelous, or so on. But the truth of it is that there, the, the, I, I'm going back to that hollowness, that bamboo image that you left with us earlier this morning. We have hollowed out what it means to be Jamaican, and the hollowness of that is showing in a context where people are panicked, people are, are, are under all kind of psychological pressure and fear, where words and, and, and visual images around lack of stigma and discrimination will and can and do fall on deaf ears, because the bonds have been so significantly broken. We, we have to do some hard work to rebuild those bonds. And, I, and, I, and I, I think you're right, the rebuilding of the bond has to do with those of us that are in power, particularly those of us that have and hold political office or bureaucratic positions or so on. There's a kind of honesty that needs to happen in those spaces. And, and and I reflect on the kind of honesty that's necessary, the honesty that says that, you know, we have been largely responsible for mashing up the Jamaican social space. We have been so driven by desire for power that we found it expedient and easy and okay to divide Jamaican people along tribal party lines that built on an exacerbated line that were already in play because of our colonial history and look where we are today, who is going to bell the cat, who is going to get these and those of us who have that kind of disdain, cause it's a certain kind of disdain for the other that led to that, that certain kind of disregard for ordinary Jamaican people. Uh, that allowed them to, to, to take those moves. And is a, a, a certain amount of lack of self-love among us Jamaican people that allowed them to come in and to make those kinds of divisions or exacerbate those kinds of divisions among among us and to continue to exacerbate those, those divisions. Um, don't make no mistake, not because we're not killing each other tribally, um, you know, machine gun or um, knife and all that kind of stuff. But the, the cleavages are there and they're not only in those, those spaces, they're in the uptown spaces as well. When I see and I listen to some of the interchange and the rabid tribalism that happened where um, some of us in certain spaces can't even have a, a critical discussion about how things are and what's being done, um in, in our in our, our our political space right now, how political leadership is leading or not leading, or where you'd like to have things happen differently, it brings concern for me. And so um going back to our sister, whose life was and, and, and the life of her unborn child was deemed to be less valuable and out of fear and a certain kind of ignorance that woman was shunted all around that we are in spaces where in a time of pandemic such as we have today hospitals could not and were not readily prepared to treat with someone who could be a victim of the covid virus boggles the mind and a lot of that is about truth we have not done the equipping, the the hospitals don't have the dedicated spaces, the frontline medical personnel don't have the equipment that they need, the frontline customer service staff doing the triage or any of that kind of stuff don't have either the the, um, educational levels, don't have the training, don't have the personality traits that are necessary, the kind of sensitivities we have not done, the kind of weeding out and, 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 and massaging of and, 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 and disciplining of the people that are going to be in those spaces and it's showing, it is showing and this is, this is just a beginning, this is just the beginning, trust me.
0: Again, again erudition. I, I feel your pain is mine as well. But I want to connect just my response to the article you sent me, Christianity in the time of sickness, and the particular observation in the article that the churches being closed is a challenge, right? Is a time of challenge. What must we make of it, you know? Serving communion from a distance and not um you know not having the the worship at all he he talks about the the kind of inadequacy and almost the falsehood of the artificiality i think he calls it of uh, the online church it it strikes me right that the way back the, the pandemic has exposed us you make reference to this inside must be hollow it has exposed us and we have to think about life after the pandemic where is the moral ethical compassionate leadership going to come from and it struck me that one must not ignore the fact that andrew's memorial hospital is owned by the seven-day adventists so you have not all owned by the anglicans and you have Andrews owned by the Seventh Day. And it is the people who are claiming Christian identity and have the paraphernalia of their Christianity and their religion banded about so everybody can see it who are at least in a position to show the milk of human kindness and compassion. That they are not giving the society any example to follow of the gentleness and thoughtfulness. They haven't Mm. thought about how they can put themselves on the road to Jericho to pick up the fallen among thieves. They have not. They have not. And this is what one is asking oneself, the question. After we have gone through this and done without church and religion in the way that it had formerly organized itself, and after so many of us including my dear departed sister who was a victim of neglect in this instance and died when it was so preventable why would people think about the church as a part of their future What is the basis on which we are going to recruit? Are we going to just take for granted that the cabin fever, when this is open, people just rush to fill the doors of churches? Or will they think about their own existential reality? The sense of the ideal Mm -hmm. that is innate and learned and that they see approximated in some places. Are those going to drive them? And I think that that is what we have to contemplate together.
1: Gareth, you know, you have made me wonder, think, um, given the religious framing of that particular institution, about the veneer of Christianity, and whether uh, our Christianity, which is so publicly proclaimed, is actually at all real, and whether it might not be just a veneer, so, so again, going back to the, your, your image and concern, around what is really real Um, and, and, and the realness of our space becomes affected in times like this and that's why something like covid unveils the depth of the hollowness that is and makes very clear how continually and deeply divided our society is and so one questions the depth of our christianity in another sense and whether um, ideas or ideals of compassion are to be found within spaces that consider themselves to be truly Christian and that's a question that needs to be asked of us in these exceedingly marked spaces I think that the church was all, already teetering significantly on um, a cliff of irrelevance before COVID hit us And I have two images and two thoughts in my mind about post-COVID and church. I could see a communal sort of exhalation among people, and perhaps a rush back into the ecclesial space, sort of like a, thank God it's over, and you rush back in to give God thanks. I could see that happening because there are still some religious sensibility, culturally, cultural religious sensibilities around church that remain in the Jamaican space that could open up a, a, um, a lot of people to going back into the church space immediately post COVID when they tap themselves and say, oh my God, wow, I'm still alive, you know? And you do a rush back for that. And I suspect very strongly that many of us church people are hoping that that will be the case and that COVID will lead people back into the church, lead them back out of a kind of fear. Because a lot of this experience is being framed apocalyptically and being framed around punishment for all the wrong things that people have done and so on. So there could be that one sort of large general influx. Post-crisis, exhalation, that I suspect we may well have seen at different points in our journey as Jamaicans. And what comes to my mind immediately is that the churches were filled um, post-emancipation, right? But then look what what happened after that. While levels of church attendance may well have remained high, what we did find was that people went off into uh, non-high church spaces, yeah? they found themselves more readily drawn to the sort of creolized, if that's a good way of putting it, versions of Christianity that might have more intersections with our African past, who knows. So that, that is one possibility, but I could also see a possibility where there's a significant turning away from church because church has not reacted or responded in a fashion during this time that helps people to treat with, to make sense of the questions that people are asking. How could God allow? Why did God do? XYZ. There's a theodicy, a deep theodicy question that has to be at play in the lives of many human beings, whether they're inside or outside of church. And we may be missing the opportunity to reflect on, yeah, going back to Father Halleck's piece, which I shared with you because, as you realize, for me, that was a stirringly brilliant piece of reflection that resounded with me as someone that doesn't do the kind of uh, traditional beat-up beat-up about what church is and God is and religion is um, and, and the kind of condemnatory ways that we make ourselves church I, I don't do it and so i find found that his piece was amazingly resonant for me as well so i wonder if where we we're not going to miss an opportunity to remake church to remake fellowship to remake identity to remake who we are as a people such that our recognition of and value of self is linked to some form of understanding of transcendence which is more than who we are currently and that while our material realities bread and butter issues are significant if if those issues aren't addressed then in a certain way our concerns with transcendence and relationship with transcendence and all that kind of thing may well be moot but as human beings, the importance and the value of meaning in that way also gives us life. And if we lose the, the value of that meaning, the meaning and the connection that we have with transcendence, maybe that's part of why we lack the kind of depths of meaning that is given expression to in a certain kind of aggression, a certain kind of savagery, a certain kind of disdain for the other, you know, and and, and, and I'm not selling church, I'm not selling religion, I'm selling humanity, I'm selling the something more that makes us who we are as created human beings, that we may well have too easily given up under pressures of the material. And and Christians who knock chess and beat tambourine and the loudest in that space may well really be given reflection to the hollowness that is inside who knows
0: i love the turn of phrase teetering on the edges of irrelevance i think it's well said i accept what you say the church is both the gift and there is a need for what the church represents and what the church stands for now what my my pivot is to say so long as you and i believe that we have to now find a way to salvage the church in the name of the gospel which means confronting the inauthenticity Mm -hmm. the lack of compassion the power grab the service of mammon which have taken over the church. It is our task to be prophetic at this time for the sake of the future of the church and the future of places like this one that is descending into a least common denominator, a power grab, an orgy of violence, and you know, a cynical inhumanity.